Thanks for tuning into Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. You may have heard that a bunch of local affordable housing nonprofits recently came together to buy the Red Carpet Inn on Route 29 in Albemarle County. Today we're going to talk about that project and how it plans to reduce area homelessness and create 140 new low-income housing units. Plus, the residents at Crescent Halls in downtown Charlottesville have been protesting substandard conditions in their building for over 20 years. And last week, the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority began construction on extensive renovations to that affordable complex. We'll talk about both these projects and what they mean in the broader conversation we're having about inequality, racism, and housing here in Charlottesville. And in the second half of the show, we'll hear about a new oral history project in neighboring Louisa County. Well, today we have a very familiar voice to WTJU listeners, but a new guest on Charlottesville Soundboard. It's WTJU rock DJ Aaron O'Hare, who has recently joined the Charlottesville Tomorrow newsroom. Um, Aaron, do you mind introducing yourself and what you're covering these days at Charlottesville Tomorrow? Sure. So I'm Erin O'Hare. I'm the new equity reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. And I have lived in town for almost 12 years, which is a little bit unbelievable to me. Um, And I have been reporting and writing in town for a while. I wrote for Seville Weekly as the arts and culture reporter for about five years something like that, five, six years. It was a long time. Um, And I just love reporting on, for, and with my community. And I'm really glad to be back to doing that for my neighbors here in Charlottesville. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I do host Yield Tuesday Afternoon Rock Show on WTJU every other week, as well as Black Circle Revolution once a month. So we're going to talk about two of your recent articles on affordable housing. Let's start by talking about the redevelopment of the housing community called Crescent Halls. Now, this article has one of the best leads I have ever seen. Can you read us the first line of your article? Sure. Alice Washington knew it was real when the porta potties arrived last week. I just love that. That's so true. Like (laughs) when the porta potties show up, like things are starting. Um, all right, so can you introduce us a little bit to Crescent Halls and, and what that construction project is going to be working on there? So Crescent Halls is an eight-story apartment building with 105 units for seniors and people with disabilities, and it's located at 105 South 1st Street, so that's along Monticello Ave. It's really, it's kind of sandwiched between, you know, Monticello Ave on one side, Ix Art Park on another, and then the Daughters of Zion Cemetery, um... And Crescent Halls was built in 1976, so that's, you know, 45 years ago. And it's one of Charlottesville's public housing communities, and it is owned and operated by the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority. And that organization was founded in the mid-1950s, and it's, you know, it's the group that was responsible for quote-unquote urban renewal. You know, the biggest example of that in Charlottesville is the raising of the thriving and predominantly black Vinegar Hill neighborhood. And um, thus, you know, that organization has been responsible for the displacement of many black residents into substandard public housing projects, including Crescent Halls. 
But in more recent years, they've really taken a totally different approach. They're very much more resident-led. Um, they're really trying to correct some of the wrongs that they did uh, back in the day. So what are the issues in the building that the renovation is working to fix? So residents have been advocating for renovations for more than 20 years because, as I mentioned earlier, Crescent Halls was built in 1976. So there's problems with the heating and the cooling systems. Um, You know, Virginia gets cold in the winter, and it also gets really hot in the summer. And when you don't have a proper heating or cooling system, that leads to problems with mold or, God forbid, hypothermia or, you know, nobody should have to live in a freezing building or a sweltering building, especially for, you know, elderly folks who are more susceptible to to that. Um, And those systems are outdated, which means they're way more expensive to repair. Uh, The appliances are old. And, you know, in recent years... In 2016, residents held a protest over the presence of roaches and a broken cooling system. And then two years later, in 2018, a clogged sewage line caused flooding in the building. And physical accessibility requirements have changed a lot since the 70s, right? So there are a number of Crescent Halls residents who use wheelchairs to get around or walkers. Um, You know, the elevator system needs updating, And these are all very legitimate complaints that have been ignored for many years due to racism and classism. Not all Crescent Halls residents are black, um, but many are. And, you know, because they are low-income folks living with disabilities, they're not, unfortunately and wrongly, not, not treated with much respect in our society, let's say. So you mentioned that the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority has been trying in recent years to really make its projects more resident-centered. So what role do residents of Crescent Halls have in the renovation plans of their building? I should note that FAR, the Public Housing Association of Residents, has done so much work in the area on these resident-led redevelopment projects. It's so important. And Crescent Halls is actually the second uh, such project in town to to begin. Uh, they broke ground on the South First Street development a few weeks ago. But my understanding is that, you know, they sat down with contractors, with builders, with the developers and said, like, this is what we want. This is what we need. And it makes such logical sense that people should have a say in what their homes look and feel like and how they function. How long are they expecting it to take to complete the whole project? Well, the renovations are are very substantial. They're basically upgrading everything but the building structure. They're replacing the heating system, the cooling system, the electrical systems, lighting, plumbing, sprinklers, elevators, security systems. All of that is going to be replaced. The building's getting a new roof. Communal spaces will be renovated. Um, Each apartment will get new appliances, new cabinets, new bathrooms, new windows, and other finishes. Um, And if all goes according to plan, residents will be able to move back into their permanent spots. Like everyone will be back in their permanent home by late 2022. How did the residents that you talked to feel about this renovation finally getting started? 
So residents are really proud of their efforts and they're excited to have up-to-date apartments that will help them feel more comfortable and secure in their homes. And during the ceremony, Mayor Nakia Walker mentioned that everyone deserves housing that they feel proud of. And I do think that's something that's not discussed nearly enough when we're talking about public housing or affordable housing in general. Um, and people are excited about that. You know, they're excited to have new functioning spaces that feel good for them. All right, so let's turn to another exciting affordable housing story. People may have heard that a bunch of local housing nonprofits came together to buy a motel, which they plan to turn into supportive housing and shelter. So they've purchased this hotel, the Red Carpet Inn. What are they going to do with it? Sure. It's a very in-depth story. And I approached it that way because this is such a complex problem, right? Like, Homelessness and low-income housing, um, they're complex issues. And so obviously they need a complex solution. And I wanted readers to understand that, no, these projects aren't easy. And maybe that's why communities don't do more of them. They're expensive, but they're really necessary. So the Premier Circle Project, which is what they're, they're calling it right now, it will be a few different things over the next few years. So right now, at this very moment... Crews are renovating 115 of the rooms at the former Red Carpet Inn. They're getting rid of mold and mildew and other structural and cosmetic damage. And they're converting that into emergency non-congregate shelter. That will be run by the Thomas Jefferson Area Coalition for the Homeless and Pacham. And that, that emergency non-congregate shelter will be staffed 24-7, 365, by Patcham staff to provide guests with intensive case management services. So everything from mental health care to help finding a permanent place to live. So that's the first phase. And that non-congregate shelter is different from congregate shelter in that individuals, couples, or families will have their own rooms. They won't be gathered together in, say, a rec room. It's more private. It's safer in a pandemic Um, You know, when we think of emergency shelters, we typically imagine, I don't know, like a church basement with a bunch of cots set up. That's not going to be the case here. It's, it's, uh, you know, they'll have a hotel room with beds and a bathroom and, um, you know, access to food and, and other services. And so that's phase one. And then over the course of phases two and three, Virginia Supportive Housing will build up to 80 permanent supportive housing units all studio apartments, and Piedmont Housing Alliance will build up to 60 affordable units for individuals and families, low-income individuals and families, and those will be one, two, and three-bedroom apartments. And then as those units, the supportive housing and the low-income housing, are built, the number of available rooms in the emergency shelter will gradually decrease. And they're doing that with the hopes that the folks in the emergency shelter will be able to move into supportive housing or the low-income housing, depending on their needs. So that's a potential 140 units of permanent supportive and low-income housing, which is fantastic. You know, that that is more than 140 people in our community who will have housing as well, because we're talking families in many cases too. And so let's talk about the difference between permanent supportive and low-income housing. So in Charlottesville... We're always talking about affordable housing, 
right? But I don't know that most folks truly understand like what that means and that it's really an umbrella term for a number of distinct types of housing. And the two here, as we said, are supportive housing and low-income housing. So permanent supportive housing is uh, permanent in that the residents sign leases and they can stay as long as they need, um, either until they find another place out in the broader community or they move into assisted living as they age. Um, and they pay no more than 30% of their income on housing costs, and that is rent plus utilities. And people experiencing homelessness often do have income, and I think that's you know, misunderstood in general. Um, and the lowest rent for the supportive housing units will be $50 a month. And the supportive part of that is that residents have access to an on-site case management service at all times. So that's mental health counseling, substance abuse counseling, community engagement, social support, um, employment, education, and vocational support, as well as transition planning into other housing types or reconnecting with family members. And the goal with supportive housing is that none of those folks will return to homelessness. And uh, the statistic that Julie Anderson from Virginia Supportive Housing told me is that 95% of their residents do not return to homelessness, which is pretty good results. Yeah, and people might be familiar with um, the crossings on Preston Avenue. That's an existing um, supportive housing space. It is, and so we have evidence that this works in our community. When when the crossings opened, it really helped reduce homelessness drastically. And they'd been wanting to do a crossings too for a long time, but that didn't work out for a number of reasons. And so that will now be at Premier Circle. So you talk a little bit in this article about why people become homeless, like here in the Charlottesville area specifically. Um, what are some of the factors at play here? It's pretty uh, easy to slide into homelessness. So say, you know, someone loses their job, they can't pay their rent, their landlord evicts them. Then you try to rent another place, right? But you have an eviction on your record. And a landlord doesn't want to rent to you because you have an eviction on your record, right? So already, it just, it starts to to tumble. Someone told me that that it's like a black hole where the closer you get to the black hole, the harder it is to pull away from its gravity. And that's, that's how you can think about homelessness as well. So, you know, you can't find a place to live because you have an eviction on your record. A landlord won't rent to you. You live in your car for a while. You save up money for first and last month's deposit on a place, but then you don't have recent rental history and a landlord won't rent to you. Or you have bad credit and you can't get a lease. You might have a criminal record. Maybe you have income, but you can't save up for first and last month's rent at the prices here in Charlottesville. Like that's a few thousand dollars. And it's hard to save a few thousand dollars when you are living paycheck to paycheck. So there are so many reasons why someone could fall into homelessness, and it's really hard to get out of that situation. Yeah. What role, if any, has Albemarle County played in this project, like policy-wise? 
Sure. So even though the the property has a Charlottesville address, it's technically in the county. And um, Albemarle County moved pretty quickly to rezone the property. It was it was zoned as um, like commercial property before for for the hotel, but now it's like a mixed residential area. And they did that really fast. I mean, these groups submitted their site plan in September of 2020 and Albemarle County's Board of Supervisors unanimously approved the rezoning in February. And then the purchase went through a month later. So pretty quick. Is there anything that people in the community can do to support this project or other anti-poverty, affordable housing, um, homelessness organizations and efforts? Yeah. So I know that for this particular project, they are still fundraising, but just keeping an eye on what these organizations are doing and saying. Um, And then also there are a lot of housing advocacy groups in town and just paying attention to what comes up in council meetings in the city and board of supervisors meetings, you know, not just what's happening policy-wise, being conscious in your daily lives about about these things. Once you start tuning into these advocacy groups and, and what they have to say, um, they can offer some more direct um, action items. Thank you for having me on and for letting me blabber Well, we can't wait to talk to you again. This has been super informative. Erin O'Hare is an equity reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. As the already high housing prices in Charlottesville and Albemarle continue to go up, More people who work in the Charlottesville and Albemarle area wind up moving out to less expensive neighboring counties like Louisa, Fluvanna, and Orange. So as our region becomes more interconnected, we're excited to bring you more stories about the cultural happenings in the places where a lot of us drive home to at the end of the day. So in our next segment, I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Lizelle Vergara, who spoke to the folks at the Louisa County Historical Society about their mission and their new oral history project. I'm Lizelle Vergara, and we're here with Carlene and Marilyn from the Louisa County Historical Society. Can you introduce yourselves and give us some background as to who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, Yeah, thanks for having us. My name is Carlene Kowalczyk. I am the director here of the Louisa County Historical Society and the Sargent Museum of Louisa County History. The Louisa County Historical Society, we were founded in 1966, actually, as an all-volunteer organization. And our mission is to bring to light, preserve, and share the history of Louisa County. Um, And we have a grant-funded project that we're currently working on, and that is where Marilyn came on board. Yes, hello everyone. I am Marilyn Campbell and I am the grant program manager. I recently came on board in December of 2020 and to date we have three projects that 
is under the African American History Program. Our overarching theme of the African American programs is to reframe historical context, listening to voices in the community. The three main projects is one, Freedom of Choice Remembrance Project, and that, that particular project will capture in interviews voices of the black students who first integrated the white high school in Louisa County under the Freedom of Choice School Segregation Plan in 1965. And these 13 students will tell of their experience, the things they encountered, how they managed to get through school, and what kind of support systems they had during that time. Are all 13 students still in the area, still in Louisa County? We have about seven to eight of them that are in the surrounding counties, and that is what makes this so rich. They can actually testify to the experiences, the things that have happened over time, Some have left and come back, and then there are those that stayed away. One member is deceased, but they integrated that grade level from 8th through 12th grade. There are more students that came thereafter, but these 13 were the first, and I just want to highlight that fact because as it captures history, it's nothing like hearing it from those that actually experienced it. The Community-Wide Oral History Project is another, and we seek to capture the interviews from the aging community and increase the presence of African-American citizens in the Historical Society's archives. Their oral history collection is extensive going back to the 50s, but we want to add to that because the community of 80% white 15% African-American, 5% other cultures such as Latinos and Native Americans and Hawaiians. And we want to embrace that diversity and include more in the archives. The other project is the school curriculum project. And we will increase the presence In the school system, we want to make that effort by doing the research of resources and best practices for developing a local African-American history curriculum for local schools. And what will you do with the results of these projects, and what are your next steps? This fall will mark the end of the first year of this program. At the start of this program, we founded a community advisory council. We didn't want the direction of these projects to come just from the historical society. We really wanted it to be participatory. So we formed a majority person of color community advisory council, and they are the body that selected these three projects. And so the three projects this year have really been about information gathering, pooling resources, And so we will make a decision as a group with input from the community about what's the best product to get this information out to a wider audience. Is that a traveling exhibit? Is that a documentary? Is that a podcast series? So we will be, we will be having those discussions this fall. We really do welcome input. Just reach out to us if you have any suggestions or ideas. 
the the building relationships was actually the foundational goal that we sort of went to the council with saying what kind of projects can we do in our community to make sure we're continuing to build and strengthen these relationships and do it in a way that's honoring people's contributions. I think a lot of times it's not intentional, but with local public history projects, we're also understaffed and underfunded that you pick up a project, you talk to some people, you put a project down. And we're really trying to be conscious not to do that, to honor people's contributions, to continue relationships with people beyond projects. And so this is a a long-term program goal of ours. That's wonderful. So how can someone learn more about these three projects? Well, I would definitely recommend a great place to get started would be to visit our YouTube channel. And if you just visit YouTube and search for Louisa County Historical Society, you will find our channel. Marilyn and I did a Zoom presentation that we recorded and made available on our channel. And that goes through the three projects in detail with the focus on how can people get involved and how can people help. So if you're interested in getting involved in any of these projects, that is a great place to get started. If you would just like to follow along with the progress of these projects, we'll be working on them for for coming years. Following us on social media, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Louisa History. You can also sign up for our e-newsletter, which we send out once a month. You can sign up for that at the bottom of our homepage at louisahistory.org. And lastly, uh, the best way is to become a member. We have four newsletters we send out a year two magazines we publish a year, and that is full of information about our programs and the history of Louisa County. Awesome. Thank you. And how can someone get involved as a volunteer? Oh, there is plenty for a volunteer. We would like assistance from the community, especially in providing memorabilia. We also would like a connection with the homeschooling network. And we need tech services for web building. There are other specific things such as newspaper article clippings of that time period. If you have a scrapbook that you'd like to contribute or let us borrow to scan some items from, we welcome that. We like report cards during that time period, athletic paraphernalia. Now, as Carlene had mentioned, you can loan, donate, or provide photographs or scans of historical items. When when I say donate, you can donate funds or you can donate these items. We need technical skills, audiovisual, editing, website content management, or educational skills for a curriculum resource development with the school project. We're looking for people that may be in the education profession and can contribute in a way of helping us shape and uh, provide some best thoughts or practices. And I'd also just like to throw in a mention that we're always looking for people to conduct interviews. If you're somebody who loves hearing old stories, talking with people, and then especially we always need help because it's so time consuming with the indexing and transcribing. We use software to populate the transcription, but it never really matches 100%. So this is a great opportunity to do remote. You don't even have to do it in person. Um, You listen to the files and, and correct the transcription. Another point on that is that you can also refer us to people. If you know of someone that you think should tell 
a story or give some pointers about going through this time period, you know, this, the past 50 years or so, it would enrich this project. We welcome that. So one can help even in the simplest ways of referring a name and we'll follow up from there. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us. I look forward to hearing more about how these projects unfold for you. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producers this week are Tanisha Alston and Lizelle Vergara. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs>